So we're starting a new series today. We, we concluded our, our study through uh, the end of the Gospel of John as we walked through our Easter season and, and celebrated that story. Now today we're, we're stepping into the Old Testament and we're going to spend a, uh, several weeks looking at the book of Isaiah. And so if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be uh, in the intro to the book, which is in chapter 1 today. Uh, and uh, again, if you, have, if you have your own Bible, you can open up with us here. If you're with us in person and don't have your own Bible, there are Bibles provided for you in the seats that you're welcome to use. And you can grab uh, one of those, and you notice on the outline is, is the page numbers of where you can find uh, these passages in those Bibles. And so you're welcome to turn with us. Again, if you're with us online, uh, hopefully you have your Bible, you can read along with us. If you don't, um, you can uh, just follow along as I read it. Uh, But like I said, we're starting into this Old Testament major prophet book um, of Isaiah. So we're going to start again with just the the very first verse, Isaiah 1.1. And it says, these are the visions that Isaiah, son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw these visions during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. So we see here again this opening verse identifies the author of the book, who the prophet was, and, and uh, we see that that was Isaiah, and again, the name of, of the book is the prophet's name, Isaiah. We see, again, it, they identify who he was. He was Isaiah's son of Amaz, and, and this, these are the things that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he, again, he was a prophet to the nation of Israel. This was during the time where the, the nation was divided, right, into a divided kingdom. We also see a list of, of four kings, right, who were the kings of Judah at this time. If we look back through history, you can see that these four kings reigned from 792 to 686 BC. And that is a 106 year span. Now, Isaiah did not serve as a prophet for all of that time. They, uh, but, you know, based on the dating within the book and the historical record, it's commonly believed that Isaiah performed his prophetic work during about a 40-year period. And when you look at kind of the end of the earliest king's reign to the very beginning of Hezekiah's reign, which is that, you can find that about 40-year span. So as we look at all of the content of Isaiah, um, covers about 40 years of Israel's history. Again, who, who is Isaiah? Well, he is a prophet and And again, a prophet is one who hears from God and then is tasked with passing on these visions and these messages to those affected by them. Again, this is in this Old Testament period, right, before Jesus uh, and even before, obviously, after his death and resurrection, as we saw last week and we talked about the last couple of weeks of how Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit and gave the Holy Spirit to all believers after his death and resurrection, And so uh, before the Messiah, before Jesus came, um, God would talk to his people through prophets. He he would um, anoint these people. He would send them messages, whether it was through dreams or visions uh, and and different ways that the the prophet would hear from God. Sometimes it was literally even an audible voice. And they would hear from God, and then they were tasked with passing on the message, whatever that was, to, to God's people. And so Isaiah was a prophet. Right? And like I said, he was a prophet over Judah and Jerusalem. So he was talking to, to the whole nation of Israel. And it's important to know, though, that prophets are divinely inspired. 
Uh, they, they, again, hear from God. They, these are messages from God. And, and so, again, there were different, um, different tests that, that was used with prophets to know if they were a, a, a genuine prophet, if they were really hearing from, from God, or if they were a false prophet, meaning they were, were not divinely inspired. And just like with prophets, again, there were false prophets, right? Ones who, who were, were giving messages and claiming they were from God, but maybe they weren't from God. And, and it gets similar test to what has been used in, in the pages of Scripture, right? To, to validate that Scripture is from God and not just somebody writing their own opinion. And I, as we see this, the prophets of the Old Testament were, were and the books that they wrote, are, are put into two different categories within our Bible. We have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Um, the, the, the end of the Old Testament is all of the minor prophets. These are typically the shorter books. There's more of them. Um, and they are the, the last books of the Old Testament. And then we have, right before that, is a section of major prophets. Now, major and minor, this, this uh, label, this title of these books, does not refer to the length of the book, but instead to the audience that it was directed to and the scope of its application. Right? Meaning, again, like Isaiah is a major prophet because he got several different uh, messages that apply to the entire nation. Right? So, uh, again, a large span of time and a large audience, which makes it him a major prophet. When you look at a lot of the minor prophets, they uh, were like one-time messages or you know, just one situation. It didn't span a lot of years. And also, it was to a smaller group of people. In fact, some of the minor prophets it involved one person or just a few, of like one family. And so, again, that's why they're minor, right? It's just they are they're one instance and a smaller uh, demographic of people for the message. The, the, the most notable, probably popular minor prophet is Jonah, right? And we know that, right? And again, Jonah's it's like four chapters long, and it's all just about his story, right? And so it's in the minor prophet category. As we, as we look at all of this, we, we realize, right, that, that since Isaiah is directed to the entire nation of Israel and spans over 40 years, Isaiah is in the major prophet book category. Also, when we read prophecy, there are some, some basics of prophecy, of, of reading it and understanding it that we need to know before we go into it. We, it is important to, to acknowledge the original audience and purpose of the writing uh, before we look at how it applies to us today. Um, it's very important to look at that, and, and in my opinion, prophecy is the most misused and misquoted form of Scripture. Um, even though it applies to a very specific situation when it was written, it also represents an unchanging and eternal God. And so there are lots of lessons to be learned from prophecy. The most famously quoted and, and talked about book of prophecy is the last book of the Bible, Revelation. It's the only book of prophecy in the New Testament. All the rest of the prophecy is found in, in this major prophet and minor prophet, last two sections of Scripture in the Old Testament. So as we look at the book of Isaiah, uh, the book is 66 chapters long, and so we are not going to be covering it chapter by chapter, okay, because we simply don't have time to do that. Um, but uh, Isaiah does have three distinct sections within its writing uh, in and those sections are chapters 2 through 39, chapters 40 through 55, and then 56 through 66. 
So for anyone wondering how long we are going to spend in Isaiah, we are going to spend seven weeks in the book of Isaiah. And we are going to be looking today, we're going to look at chapter one. And chapter one is the summary or the outline of the entire book. And so we're going to look at chapter one today as the intro to Isaiah. Uh, And then we are going to cover the first two sections. So we're going to spend then three weeks on chapters 2 through 39. And then we're going to spend three weeks in chapters 40 through 55. And then we uh, are not going to cover at all chapters 56 through 66. We will leave those for another time. So today we are going to open and, and, and study, uh, again, the summary or the outline of the entire book, which is Isaiah chapter 1. But before we jump back into the text, as we see this, this intro uh, uh, from verse 1, we need to understand, if we look at all this, this backstory of Isaiah, the, the structure of it, of prophecy, and all these kind of things, we need to understand that I, Isaiah is a complex weave of stories, judgments, victories, and future predictions. There's all kinds of things in Isaiah. There's, there's a, a wide range of content. There's a wide range of, of literary forms, meaning some of it is narrative and stories. Some of it is, is prophetic visions. Some of it is, is again, just explanations of, of, of events that were happening in Israel. There's, it's a very complex weave. And so as we step into this uh, through the next several weeks, uh, just know that that's why we're, I'm, we're, we're not spending it chapter by chapter because it's, it's very complex. And yet even, if, I encourage you to read it yourself or to read ahead and, and to look at that, but uh, again, just, just know that, um, that it's a little bit confusing, right, if you just literally read it straight chap- through the chapters, so, which is why we're going to go through it together. So we're going to start this morning, again, uh, with this first little section um, of chapter 1, and that is verses 2 through 3. So again, if you have your Bible, uh, I just encourage you, again, leave it open to Isaiah. We're going to go back to it a couple different times uh, this morning, but we're going to start here with verse 2 and 3. It says, Listen, O heavens, and pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care, but Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. So we stop with these two verses as, as here, as Isaiah, like I said, as he's opening up the book and, and, and states his purpose for writing from the very beginning. He says, God, show me, here is the problem. Hey, and in fact, right here in these first, uh, first verses, verses 2 and 3, uh, he identifies the core issue that God is addressing at this point in Israel's history. And the core issue is rebellion against God. He said, now remember, who is Israel? Israel is God's chosen people. Right? It is his nation. He's, he has, has walked with them through, through all these different years of history and gotten them again to this point. And, and now they are being called out by God through Isaiah and saying, the core issue I have with the nation is you have rebelled against me. Right, now, within these verses, the, the, this this problem, we've, how did we get here? And God identifies how they got here, that, that this was a two-step process that got us here to rebellion against God. 
Uh, the, the first issue or step for them to get to this rebellion was, was the fact that they now don't know God. Right? They, they have no connection with him. They don't even know who he is. Now again, this was a process. This was not like a, they were walking with God and he was there and then all of a sudden they just didn't know him. I mean, this, this was a, a slow drift. Right? A process of decisions and and generations, and change in leadership, and, and they, they had drifted to this place, to, to the point where they don't even know God at all. And again, remember, this is Israel. This is God's chosen people. They had a rich history and a deep connection with God, something that they had neglected. We can think back again to Abraham, to Joseph, to Moses, to David, which these are all some of Israel's God-appointed leaders, and yet over time they drifted from this close connection to the point where they, they didn't really know God at all. And again, we can think about those different relationships in our lives or those seasons maybe of our faith, of, of times that we've been really close and we, we knew God really well, but then maybe we've drifted, right, to the point where we're whether it's a human relationship or even your relationship with God, and think, man, I just don't know who you are anymore. Right? And that's where Israel ended up with God. And, and when they get to that point, then the, the second step of the process that, that got them there to this place where they were in open rebellion against God was that as the less they got to know God, the less that they acknowledged God's care. Now, God had done a lot for them. God was continuing to do a lot for them. And yet, you got to this point where God is sitting back and thinking about the, you know, the fact that their relationship had drifted apart, that, that they, they weren't as close, they didn't even know each other anymore. And, and, and the, the less you know them, the less you recognize what that person does for you or what that God does for you. We see here that Isaiah uses the analogy of a parent and a child. That's, that, that's the way he opens up these verses. And if you're a parent, you could probably identify with God's perspective here. right? Because there are different phases of parenting, which is normal and healthy. And as your kids grow up, and, and again, naturally as we raise them, our goal right, is, is to have them be adults and to, to leave our house and to be productive members of society. right? And, and to do that, we have to, to, to kind of, again, distance ourselves a little bit. We go through different phases of our relationship, right? Where, where we start out when they're little babies, we do literally everything for them. We provide everything for them. And as we move through those different phases, it doesn't really change that you provide for them. It just changes what it looks like. And, and again, as a parent, you can, we can identify with where God's at because this, I think, would be more like the teenager phase. Right? Where you're like, man, I do so much for you and you don't even care. I see, uh, it's funny because the room, some is like, yep. And some people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right? If, if you've never parented a teenager, you, you, you'll get it when they get there. Right? But as we see this, right, they, they, they drifted in their relationship to where they didn't even know God. And, and the result of that is to where they, they didn't even acknowledge what God did, does for them. Right? And, and the, the end result is, is this, this rebellion. 
Right? They're distant from God. The relationship has been broken. And then Isaiah moves in here to this next section in verses 4 through 9, which is where we're going to pick up. He says, oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured. Your heart is sick. You are battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds, without any soothing ointments or bandages. Your country lies in ruins and your towns are burned. Foreigners plunder your fields before your eyes and destroy everything they see. Beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-to in a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of us, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. Again, as we read these Verses we can't help but notice, they're pretty depressing. Again, God's laying out the truth. I mean, this is the, the moment, right, for Israel when it's like, here's where we've gone, and now here's the truth about where we're at. It's pretty dismal. And, and yet, God points out a few things about, about their current situation. As, as he calls them out, the, the first thing that, that God teaches, again, the nation of Israel, and this is a lesson that, that they had to learn over and over again, it's a lesson we have to learn over and over again, and that is that we are a victim of our own choices. We are a victim of our own choices. Again, God just lays it out, right? I mean, literally, he, I mean, he says it in verse 5. He's like, why do you continue to invite punishment? Like, what? Open your eyes. Right? Must you rebel forever? I mean, your head is injured. Your heart is sick. He's like, just admit where you are. This is not a good place. And God is sitting there going, and, and remember that where we were, we had this connection. I did so much for you, and yet all you did was push me away and spit in my face. And that was your choice. And now you're living out the consequences of your decisions. Right? You are getting what you asked for. Right? You're a victim of your own choices. Again, this, this concept, this idea, even these scriptures kind of speak to the common question about how can a living God send anyone to hell? How can a loving God ever, ever push people away? And the reality is God doesn't push us away. The reality is a loving God doesn't send anyone to hell. The, 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 the truth is that God is there the entire time with open arms saying, I love you. I'm here for you. I just want you to know me. I still do all these things for you and you don't even acknowledge, right? A, a loving God does not send anyone to hell. Because the reality is a loving God provided a way through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, through our Messiah, for all of us to be saved. That's what God did. Right? We, by our own choices, push God away. And God respects our free will. So the answer that God's, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? The answer is that God doesn't send anyone to hell. 
our loving God has provided us a way out. That's what God did. And, and, and which leads to, to the second lesson, right, that, that God points out here and that Isaiah says here in these verses, and, and that is the fact that even in the midst of rebellion, God still shows grace. Even in the midst of rebellion, God still shows grace. I mean, grace, right, is getting something I don't deserve. And yet we see that's exactly what Isaiah points out, right, about Israel. He said, the reality is, if the Lord of heaven's army had not spared a few of us, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and destroyed like Gomorrah. Again, Isaiah is referencing to, to earlier history, right, in, in the time of Abraham when when God literally destroyed these two cities because of their rebellion and because of the evil that was in them. I mean, wiped them off the face of the planet. You can go back and read those stories if, you, if, you, if you're not familiar with that. Hey, but, but again, the, the point, right, is, is that God has still shown us grace because he didn't wipe us out completely like we deserved. Even in the midst of rebellion, God still shows grace. As I think back in my own life and, and, and my own journey, I, I, this is one of the lessons, right, and major realizations that God showed me after I wrecked my dirt bike. Because I, the reality is I was a victim of my own stupidity. And if God had not stepped in, I would not be standing before you today. Now, I still got hurt pretty bad. Right? I still suffered a lot of consequences, but, but God stopped it short. Right, of what I should have experienced. God limited the consequences that I truly deserved. Because the reality is I was a victim of my own choices, and even in the midst of rebellion, God still showed grace. And my guess is you can probably find stories and times in your journey that that's also true for you. So we see, again, as, as God kind of lays out the case here in these, these verses, then, then he continues on in verses 10 through 17. Because that wasn't enough. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings and the rams and the fat and of, of the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, you asked, who asked you to parade through my courts with all of your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they're all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, you, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Again, if we thought... Verses 4 through 9 were depressing. All right, look at this section. Because this is very strong language. 
I, I mean, God doesn't pull any punches. I, I mean, yeah, this is one of those passages I read, and I, I sit back and, man, and, and ask myself, I wonder what God really thinks. I, I, why wouldn't he just tell us the truth? I, I mean, it's, he's very blunt. And, and yet, as we look at this, this, this list of things that, that God is upset about, that God doesn't like, right, of the nation of Israel, uh, the, the ironic thing about this right, is that God asks this question, like, whoever asked you to do all this stuff? And the, the, the answer to that question is, God did. Right, all of the festivals, all of the sacrifices, all those things, those are all things that God told Israel to do. Right, he, he gave them the law. He, he gave them all of those things to, to, to walk through. And again, the, the, the ironic part of this list is that they're doing the things that God told them to do. The sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the ceremonies, the celebrations, the Sabbath. And yet, God tells them in these verses, I would rather you just don't do it at all. And so why? I mean, again, the answer is, well, God, I did what you told me to do. I don't understand why it's not working. And that's exactly where Israel's at right now. And yet, God says you might be walking through the motions, you might be doing the things, but you miss the point. And because the reality is that God cares about the condition of our heart way more than the actions and routines and traditions. God cares about the condition of our heart way more than he cares about the ceremonies and the routines and the traditions and the, the things that we do. Again, Israel was still walking through the motions, but it was completely empty and meaningless to them. Right? The, the point of, of all of these routines, of, of the sacrifices, of the Sabbath, of the celebrations, of the ceremonies, of, of all of the offerings, right, was was to keep them connected to God. But it wasn't doing that at all. And the reality is that God doesn't want relate uh, God does not want religion. He wants a relationship with you. Right? God does not want religion. He wants a relationship with you. This text basically says, if all you have is routines and traditions that, that, and that don't mean anything, God would rather have you just stop doing it altogether. If you're just checking off boxes and doing stuff because you've always done them, God says, just stop doing it. And again, this is a, this is a perfect definition of what religion is. Checking off boxes, honoring tradition. But yet, it's empty and meaningless. And God is looking at Israel and saying, you might as well just stop because you're wasting both of our time. In verses 16 and 17, he says, this is the reality where we are. Here's the step out. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. 
You notice here as at, at the end of this, this incredibly raw and humbling section, God gives two steps for them to take. Right In verse 16, he says, you need to get your heart right. Right? Relationship first. Just set all the actions aside. And let's get our relationship connected first. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get rid of your sin. Right? Because what does sin do? Sin separates you from God. Right? And God says, we need to restore this relationship. That is the most important thing. Restore the relationship. That's the first thing we have to do. And then once the relationship is there, once that's restored, once, once we're, that, that's been healed, right? once your sin is gone, once we're, we're reconnected, then do stuff. Right? And that's in verse 17, right? He says, then you can learn to do good. Right? And seek justice and help the oppressed. Defend. I mean, d- do that stuff. But, but you have to, you have to, the relationship has to come first, period. Because if the relationship's not there, then it's pointless and it's meaningless for us both. And, and as, as he identifies again these to Israel, we have to learn and know that, that, that God wants both relationship and action. God wants both. But the relationship always comes first. Always. The relationship comes first. Always. Right? That's the story of the gospel. I mean, that's, that's why God sent Jesus to this earth. Right? It was because he loved us. Right? That's about relationships. God wants both, right? We are, as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to do stuff. God wants both, but the relationship comes first. It is way more important than actions. Again, the actions need to be the result of the relationship. Because when that's true, right, when the actions are the result of the relationship, then we have a very different attitude when we're doing those actions. What traditions and actions do we keep up today in the American church in 2021? Well, there's a pretty good list. Again, just a few of them, right? We, I mean, we know them, right? Like attending church, I mean, is one of those things, right? Just, I mean, come to church. We're supposed to go to church, right? We know that as followers. But again, just coming to church can become an empty tradition. And yet, when I look at, at where we're at again as a church at Oregon Trail and just the, you know, the, the environment and the culture that we have, just uh, again, I, I look at that and, and in recent conversations, even whether it's with people that are here in person or even with those that are, that are faithfully watching online. And again, thank you for faithfully watching online if you're there. Right? But just, again, one of the things that I've heard right, for, from people is that they say that they're sad. They're, they've said, like, we're going to be gone next week. We're sad we're going to miss next weekend. Right? We, we wish we could be at church, but we have to go do this. Right? That, that's, that's a very healthy place. Right? That means that we're coming to church for the, because of the relationship with God and with other people, and we miss it when we don't come. Right? If it's just an empty action, right, then it's like, oh, I, I have these other things, so I, church is the first thing off, off the list. Right? 
if it's an empty action or tradition. Okay, so again, that's the thing to be celebrated, right? That, like, that's, that, that's awesome. Again, one of the other kind of things that our, our American church culture can do that can become very empty is, is donating money. Right, do we give out of just tradition or, you know, just every time I walk in, I, you know, th- throw a 20 in the box? Again, the, the point of, of why God tells us to give is, it, is not because God needs your money. Right? God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The reality is if he, if he needs your money, he'll take it. But, but why, why do we give money? We give because it's, it's a natural next step because of the relationship. Because God tells us to, because we know it's good for us and it's good for our faith and it keeps our hearts focused on God, not on my bank account. Right? It acknowledges that God's my provider, not the world. I acknowledge again that it's all God's anyway and that he, even if I biblically tithe, right, give 10%, that God lets me keep 90% of his money that he puts in my life and that's a very generous God to let me keep 90% of his stuff. As we think about that, that idea, right, this is exactly what Jesus speaks to about giving money in Matthew 23, 23. He says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income of your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. And what's the most important thing? Relationship. Right? And, and again, to say, as I bring up money, right, it's, it's always a little touchy thing as a pastor to bring up money, right? But, but, but again, you say that, we bring it up because, I mean, God talks about it a lot. And, and a lot of times pastors bring it up because, because the church is, is hurting financially. And again, I can tell you that's not my motivation at all in bringing it up today. In fact, I bring it up today to even celebrate as a church because we are way ahead of budget. Thank you, church. Right? And the reality is now we can look at that and say, okay, God, what do you want us to do with your money, and what, how can we expand and, and reach more people with your gospel, right? Because we're not having to sit around and have, you know, how do we cut the budget? Where do we cut the budget discussions? Right? We had board meeting on Thursday night, and I tell you, again, the, the board meetings are, are very different right, than when giving is not good. So thank you, church, for being faithful. But again, just like when I talk about why people are coming to church, I think why people are giving, again, they're giving for the right reasons. They're giving because of, of uh, the relationship they have first, right? And they're being obedient to what God has called us to do. So as, as we look at these things, again, we can, we can also look at this and, and, and see victory, right? Not just defeat, but the hard reality is that most people in our world today, they don't even go through the motions anymore. Right? They just say the right things, but they don't even sometimes keep up appearances. Right? And I, I can even say I've, I'm guilty of sometimes right, of saying, telling people, I will pray for you, but do I actually pray for them? Right, and, and that's, again, something God had convicted me about. And to say, like, I, I know what to say, right? But, but do I do it? Do I follow through? 
right, with whatever God's calling me to do? Is, is it, is, is I do things, it is, a, is it a direct connection and result of my relationship with God or with those people? As we see, these verses are, are hard, right? but then we get to verses 18 and 20, where it says, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. Again, as we get to these verses in the midst of this, right, this is the intervention moment. Right, this is when God sits down, looks us in the eye, and says, it's time to choose. Right, let's stop playing games. Let's stop ignoring reality. Because the, the truth is we're at a crossroads. Right, just as, as it says, he's like, hey, let's, come on, let's, let's settle this. Let's, let's look at where we really are. Hey, and, and, and as we get to this crossroads, Right, is, is God, in the midst of this, shows us the result of true repentance. And God shows us the result of true repentance. Because the reality is, first is repentance, first requires confession. And that's what he tells us to do in verse 18. He says, come on, let's, let's settle it, right? Let's, let's, let's confess it. Let's get it all out there. And then, and then, True repentance not starts with a confession, and then the next step of true repentance is moving in a new direction, which is what he tells us in verse 19. Right? He says, if, again, if, if you confess, right, you're, you're, you'll be washed clean. Your sins are forgiven. Be, you'll be white as snow, and then, and then the new direction is, then you will obey me, and, and you will have plenty. We'll move in a new direction, right? The, the nation is in desolate state right now, but if, if you do this, then, then we're going we're gonna to move somewhere new. Right? And then, but he also gives us the, the other option, right, in verse 20, which is, if you don't change, you're headed towards more destruction. And then we end up, again, as, as once we have this kind of fresh breath, right, from God about now where do we go? Right? And he shows us again where we can go. And then he goes into this last section of the chapter in verses 21 through 31. Again, these, these first verses here, verses 21 through 23, God reviews once again how far Israel has drifted. And then picking up at verse 24, he says, Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, the mighty one of Israel says, I will take revenge on my enemies and pay back my foes. I will raise my fist against you. I will melt you down and skim off your slag. I will remove all your impurities. And then I will give you good judges again and wise counselors like you used to have. And then Jerusalem will again be called the home of justice and the faithful city. Zion will be restored by justice. Those who repent will be revived by righteousness. But rebels and sinners will be completely destroyed. And those who desert the Lord will be consumed. Again, Jesus, uh, God takes us to the next step right, and shows us, though, his will for Israel, 
which is, again, his will for all of us, and that is that God desires for us and for renewal, not judgment. But God's desire for us is renewal. I want to make you clean, and I want to take you to a new place. Right? I, I don't want to judge you. I don't want to push you down any further. As you see again in verses 27 and 28, where he says that Zion will be restored by justice. Those who repent will be revived by righteousness. But rebels and sinners will be completely destroyed, and those who desert the Lord will be consumed. See, that's one of the things I love about Scripture, is that it, it tells us the truth. Right? And God tells Israel the truth. He says, you have the opportunity to be restored. And in fact, that's, that's God's will for them. He's calling them to be renewed. And in fact, when we look at the whole outline of this chapter, right, it starts with identifying their sin, with the consequences of punishment that comes from that. Then it's a call to repentance. And it's, it's a vision of renewal. And that is the story of the gospel. This was literally written hundreds of years before Jesus walked this earth. And yet, this is a foreshadow of the work of the Messiah. And that is God's will, is to renew us. And the way that we are renewed is through receiving Christ as our Savior, having our our sins washed clean, just like it's described in Isaiah. And then once we find, accept Jesus as our Savior, invite him into our life, right, and receive his grace and mercy, then we then move in a new direction. We join the journey of faith, and we grow every day to be more like Christ. Right, and, and again, that is the story of the gospel. That, that is the foreshadow of what Isaiah shows Israel, and it's what we still see and what we still need today. Which means my final thought this morning, and that is this. Just like Israel, God wants to be your king and has done a lot to renew your relationship. Do you know God? Do you recognize his work in your life? Will you take a step closer to him today? Again, I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. I don't know if you've joined the journey, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. I don't know, maybe you've never known God before. Maybe you've been walking with him for years. But do you need to be saved? If so, then you can pray and receive Christ your Savior today. Do you need to be renewed in your faith, right? Pray that, that recommitment life. Do you need to just celebrate, right, the health that's in your life? I don't know what your next step is, but I encourage you to take it today. Lord God, thank you that you are a God that doesn't give up on us. God, just like you chased after Israel, God, you chased after us. And God, we thank you, Lord, not only do you pursue us, God, and show us your love even when we don't deserve it, even when we push you away. God, we are also so thankful, God, that you, you never fall short. God, that no matter how far away we drift, Lord, it's always one step back. Lord, in a prayer of confession, of receiving of your grace, and we thank you for that. And God, we ask for your guidance in our life. God, help us to see again through, through, through your wisdom, God, about where we really are and where you want to take us.
what's holding us back in our faith. God, how are we representing you in this world? And God, I pray, Lord, that you would restore any broken relationships between us and you, between each other. And God, that as we go this week, as we live out our faith, God, that we would show this world who you really are. We thank you, God, for not giving up on us. Lord, we thank you for chasing after us with your love and your grace. And God, we thank you for not even giving us the full consequences of our own choices. God, may you continue to work in each of us. Lord, as we represent you well, as we walk in our faith journey this week, we love you, we praise you, we thank you today. Guide us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.